God bless you, everyone. Today, we talk about the fight for your identity. What do we mean by your identity? It's the identity God gave you as a man. The many testimonies I share tonight will paint a picture of my journey of fighting for my identity. Here's a spoiler alert. Fighting for your identity without God doesn't work. For every piece of my history and testimony I share with you tonight, the glory all goes to God. There's nothing to boast about here. What God has given me, I give to you by testimony of God's glory and what he has done in my life. In the past, I would have been embarrassed, but today I know that my testimony is all for the glory of the kingdom of God. I share with my brothers so that you know you aren't alone. So my stories are not that much different than you. Um, our agenda tonight, we're going to talk about the culture of men. We'll talk about our fight to survive. We'll talk about loss brings faith. We'll talk about our not knowing protects us. Uh, we'll talk about men missing the big picture. We'll talk about what men need, and it's from God. We'll talk about a man's identity. It's not female or gay. Uh, and the world tries to decide our identity. We'll talk about that. And we know God knows what is right for you. And that's our agenda. So let's talk about the culture of men first. First of all, the, the measure of a man is what he owns. That's what we have in today's world, like the house, the car, some sort of a measurable amount. Uh, number of kids, that's true for my family. Not as much now, but it had been. Uh, titles, degrees, that's the corporate culture. That defines this. Uh, the result of culture. Uh, it's the battle of fatigue, stress, burnout, competition. The wife works, wife walks out the door. A never-ending debt, the loss of self-respect leading to suicide, things like that. We need to fight back. We were looking at a book called uh, Six Battles of Every Man Must Win uh, by Bill Perkins. Um, and on page 33 of the book, it says, Today our battle isn't with swords and shields. Our war is against an invisible spiritual enemy and the cultural forces he uses to bully us. I'll take you to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, written by the Apostle Paul. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We need to stand our ground. That's why we have the full armor of God. Uh, in Ephesians 6.1, I'm going to read that to you. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. We're covering six battles man must overcome. They are spiritual battles, but we must fight in those battles. We'll learn here and at our Sunday and Wednesday services at the Resurrection Center, the biblical strategies. Uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is our fight to survive. Now, again, we've been talking about uh, the book uh, from Bill Perkins, Six Battles Every Man Must Win, uh, and The Ancient Secrets You'll Need to Succeed. So this book has been passed out. Um, so let's talk about the book. It talks about 
a story about Benjamin Martin in the Revolutionary War as portrayed in the movie, The Patriot. He had a peaceful life after getting married and having seven children. He stayed out of the war to have a peaceful life after his wife died, and he had to care for his children. Now Gabriel, his oldest son, goes to war. Benjamin helps both sides of the war with medical aid, and as a consequence, the story shows the result of his first and second sons killed and his farm burned. He worked hard for peace and comfort, love, and a place of safety, but the consequences were a total loss uh, and fear. Things like that change a man to fight. We've always been in a state where we've had a total loss and fear. See, it changed Benjamin, and it can change us. So Benjamin, he saw that being passive did not bring peace and did not protect his family. His anger put him back in the war that he tried to avoid and to be a leader. Benjamin had anger and determination. Benjamin fought before he had lost so much. He, we, we have values and we must fight to maintain them. That is our identity. We all have come to a place of fear because we have lost peace, comfort, love, and a place of safety at one time in our lives. With that loss, we forget who we are. We forget what God wants us to be. If we fight, then we can rediscover our identity. We can eventually come into a place of knowing uh, what and who God wants us to be. Think about that. We can come to into a place of knowing what and who God wants us to be. You see, Satan attacks us, and when we lose so much, we fight and seek God. Now let's talk about how loss brings faith. Today, I will open up a few stories to illustrate examples of the fight for our identity. It's not to boast. It's not to embarrass myself. It's, it's not pride, and it certainly isn't pretty. You know, it's not some of the uh, testimonies that I share, you know, I, you know, originally I didn't want to share them. You know, I didn't want to hang myself out there, but these are testimonies to help my brothers in Christ. Okay, so I do it to draw a picture from my perspective to show you that you have your own perspective too. We all come from different backgrounds as unique as our thumbprint and social security number. No one person is the same as the other. Use my example as one of many. Just like Benjamin, I lost so much from alcoholism. All right, let me tell you, it was a dark history of addiction that nearly cost me my life on multiple occasions. I'm not proud of it, uh, but I've been delivered from it. I'm not here with a bright studio lights and pretty virtual backgrounds because of what I did. God has me here today for a reason. That's why I was delivered from the dark past. I am fighting now and have been for many successful years in that area of addiction. I've been victorious for many years. The glory goes to God. I didn't do it. I really did it. Faith gives us something to fight for. We fight for what Satan wants to take away from us. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, the scripture says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Yes, that's right. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And that's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. It is a spiritual struggle whereby we stand firm in the truth of God's word and battle against the word, the flesh, the devil, and our own self-will. Fighting the good fight of faith 
is not as much hostile combat against a physical enemy, but rising to the challenges of our Christian life or confidentially, or confidently, I should say, taking hold of the eternal life that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we fight the fight of faith, we are trusting God in all things. And in doing so, we are taking hold of eternal life. Eternal life is not only about living forever in the life to come, but it's about living a victorious life in the here and now. It is about growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus and developing a precious intimacy with him as we abide securely in his love. We're going to talk now about our not knowing protects us. So now let me tell you a story about not knowing the full picture God knows about you in the situation. And I'll give this as an example. As a kid, I wanted to go on a school trip to Washington, D.C. You know, when I, when I was in elementary school, it was very common. It was a big deal for freshman year of high school. It's elementary school and freshman year of high school. My father said it's not worth going to a place you don't know. He said that. He said because I didn't know anything about Washington, D.C., that I shouldn't go. Well, I said, that, well, that's why we're going, so that we know it. <laughs> the promise was, if I knew Washington, D.C., then I could go. So I had two books to learn from, and I studied. Uh, one was about monuments. The other one was all about the streets and where everything was. By a set deadline, I knew everything. I knew the streets, directions, monuments, everything. My twin sister, I have a twin sister. We were part of this together. She's a witness of the work that I put in. Um, she gave up on the fight. She didn't want to learn. Um, she wasn't concerned about the commitment, but I did. So when I proved my commitment, my father said that since I already knew Washington, D.C., then I didn't need to go. Now I knew it, so I didn't need to know. So I had worked hard for something, and it was taken away. My twin sister chuckled because she got the same result as I did, and she didn't have to work hard for the disappointment. But you know what? I didn't see the big picture, but it's not my fault. He never wanted me to go on the trip. Uh, at the time, I did not know that he had a very good reason. I was too young to understand. He couldn't explain it. He did not expect me to learn so well from the two books. He, he, my father had a government contracts involving international issues related to high technology for satellites in space. Okay, I'll say it. Defense Department. I was too young for him to be able to explain to me the risk of his own children walking the streets of Washington, D.C. He made the right decision. He made up for it. He brought my younger brother and I to New York City. We went to the finest restaurants. You know me, I love food. We went on helicopter ride and circled the Statue of Liberty just before sunset. That's the way to see the statue. After 9-11, that type of tour is no longer possible. My father made a decision that made me very sad, but in the end, he was right, and he showed his love with the New York trip. I understood better years later. In 2012, I was a flight engineer flying in a helicopter testing military device applications. Not many people know about that. My company was subcontracted by my father's company. Flying over the Mass Pike from Boston to Westover Air Force Base reminded me of the flight around the Statue of Liberty decades ago. I also knew of what the sensitivity of walking around D.C. years ago would have been, as now in 2012, had been associated with military application. 
Things like that could not be explained to a young boy. It took decades to finally see the full picture. This is an example of a big picture that is too big for us to understand. We can be disappointed by something that no, that is one small piece of a much larger picture intended to protect us. Our direction can't be chosen. Using God helps with that direction. He knows all things. God has the big picture. We may not understand it. We must trust it. God knows. We don't. That's why we say, let God be God. Uh, let's now talk about what men need. So what do, the, uh, what, what do men need? Men don't learn how to be men in a vacuum. Boys need teachers and mentors who ultimately point them toward a relationship with God. You don't see much of that. Learning to cultivate peer and mentor relationships with other men is often the beginning of creating the capacity for a fathering relationship with God. That's what the Braveheart of Men's Group is all about. Masculine needs that were not supplied early in life can be recaptured as an adult if the man is in search of it. Proverbs 27.17 reads, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the continence of his friend. Our attraction is to the opposite sex is a mystery. Intuitively, the drive to bond with the opposite sex seems so much more than reproduction. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 uh, through 32, the Apostle Paul describes the one flesh relationship between a husband and wife as imitating Christ's relationship with the church. A reciprocal pattern of sacrifice and submission to each other is the model God sets for marriage. Now let's talk about man's identity. It is important that a boy leaves childhood with a secure sense of masculinity because at puberty our sex drive is turned on. If not, then well we know the story. It's all about LGBTQ. We are sexually attracted to what is mysterious to us. It's how we are wired. If we are not developed with a source of sense of masculinity, then we are sexually attracted to is misguided. A secure man knows who he is and feels comfortable in his masculinity and can safely pursue his opposite, meaning the female. Men that have trouble with commitment in relationships often had trouble in their developmental jump. They feel an unstable sense of masculinity and fear of being re-engulfed in their mother relationship by attaching to a woman. Learning to embrace masculine traits and how to balance them against female traits is a process that starts in childhood. But then again, if the process doesn't start, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Signs of masculine insecurity may include failure to achieve goals, unable to commit to a relationship, lack of confidence, lack of self-centeredness, addictions, and other narcissistic personality traits. We need to help our children with their development. It starts early. God can help those who start late. It's a decision of trust in the Lord for that to happen. When we become reborn into Christ, we receive a new nature with Godward affections, enabling us to cast ourselves upon Christ and receive forgiveness of sin. Our entrance into God's family as children is the key that unlocks the rest of the Christian life. You may feel hardened. You have regrets. But in Christ, your natural heredity record of sin is forgiven and your guilt may be removed. You are free to live above the attacking voice of your inner demons. 
Christian men must begin to build their self-conception on their status as sons of God. To be a child of God is, in part, to be a, a passive recipient of God's grace and paternal affection. But Christian men are also to be fathers, active workers in others' lives, not merely in the physical sense, but in the sense that their firsthand knowledge of God qualifies them to influence others. Just as with mature manhood comes the longing to impart to a son the wisdom, skills, and values gained along one's journey, so with Christian manhood comes the desire to plant a spiritual legacy in others. In our youth, God graciously adopts us into his family and gives us a new name. In our maturity, we call others to receive that same adoption, and we cultivate a new generation as his namesake. The more we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, the more we will come to understand who we are as men. This question of identity is a crucial one, for what we think about ourselves is the pivot of our existence. Every day, in one way or another, we live out who we think we are. Yet our identity can only come from the outside, exterior to ourselves, and it comes from the voices we have listened to. What are those voices? Sometimes it is the voice that shames us through mockery or public criticism. Other times it is a voice that offers us praise only when we perform up to certain standards. Now let's talk about how the world tries to decide our identity. Now, my natural father, my, my father, wanted me to be an electrical engineer. Um, he was a physicist. He said I would always have a job because a physicist can keep a hundred engineers busy. Now, I applied to Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, and I got accepted. That's where I wanted to go. Now, my parents decided that I would go to the University of Massachusetts, a fine school, happy I went there, instead, because that is where my four older brothers went. I was okay with that. So the choice of studies and the school I went to was someone else's. My identity was being created for me. I was developing my future professionally. Uh, my future professional identity was based on someone else. Um, it wasn't God's choice. So fast forward. With that influence, this is what happened. Got a master's degree in education. Nothing like electrical engineering. He insulted my father, insulted the institution where I chose where I, where I paid. He didn't know that I was where my godfather was on the board of directors of Cambridge College. He didn't like it when I brought that up, but that changed his, but that uh, changed his opinion. Uh, I started a book co publishing company. Uh, it's different now, but it was, again, nothing like electrical engineering. He didn't like that it was an electrical engineering. Then we won an award with the company at only two years old. He changed his opinion. You see, we're going to talk about the next topic. It brings us to the next topic. God knows what is right for you. You have to fight with what is right for you, and God knows. God has chosen something for you, not for others. I, I know it was right. I also know it is what God wanted. I've been in education for 34 years with many awards along the way. That's God shining his light, not me. And uh, I've been in business now reaching the world for 28 years, almost 30 years. That's God shining his light. That's not me. On November 5th, my wife and I presented to the church a story how my family had an image of a white girl from Boston I would marry. 
They didn't like the Spanish-speaking illegal alien from Colombia. Well, I did. You should have seen the reaction when I said I was going to marry her in two months. Four months after I met her, I proposed. Two months after that, we were married. That was about 20 years ago. 20 years later, my wife and I always tell, uh, tell that God, tell God exactly how God uh, orchestrated that. Uh, we always tell people exactly how God orchestrated that. Um, so why am I telling you this? It doesn't matter what people say you should do. Eventually, God will have his way. It won't even look like what you had planned. You might have seen me wearing a bracelet. The scripture on it says Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. See, God has a plan. So what does Jeremiah 29, 11 mean to us? Christians facing difficult situations today can take comfort in Jeremiah 29, 11, knowing that it is not a promise to immediately rescue us from the hardship or suffering, but rather a promise that God has a plan for our lives. And regardless of our current situation, he can work through it to prosper us and to give us hope. Basically, whatever God has planned for you is a good thing. We all spend a lot of time in our jobs. Men introduce each other, ask, what do you do? Women, not so much. Men ask each other that. In some ways, your job is your identity. It shows you as a provider for your family. It is your connection to the community. It's the skills you pass on to your kids or others. You know, the hard skills, the soft skills, the inherent skills that are part of your calling. It shows your kids purpose in life. It teaches your kids motivation, organization, and discipline. Kids watch how we handle responsibility, such as how we handle uh, our jobs. Budgeting from our jobs, our finances. Budgeting teaches value for what we have. It shows we need to work for what we have. You know, think of how much time you spend on your job. 40 hour, a 40-hour work week plus travel, early, late arrival, it's 168 hours total in a seven-day week. It's about 30% of your time. A third of your life is spent on your job. Now, perhaps 50% of more energy is spent in the jobs as well. The time and energy investment for our job makes it worthy of our identity. We demonstrate to our kids the importance of jobs. How? They go to school. As parents, we send them there. Okay? So th this is what's happening. Um, we talked today uh, about the culture of man, our fight to survive, law springs faith, our not knowing protects us. We talked about men missing the big picture. Uh, we talked about what men need, and it's uh, from God. Uh, we talked about a man's identity. It's not female or gay. We talked about what the world tries to decide. It's uh, They try to decide our identity for us. And uh, then we wrapped up by saying, God knows what is right for you. So what is the punchline? Use the Holy Spirit. God is waiting. God is there. Um, I bless you. Thank you for joining me. My name is Dave.